0: The Gist is brought to you by Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Casper mattresses come with free delivery and returns within a 100-day period. And get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash gist and using the promo code GIST. And by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter the offer code GIST at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. The following
1: podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, March 7th, 2016 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I am Mike Pesca with a very important message. It's a message you might not hear anywhere else, but it's also a message that I may have mentioned here on this program a couple of times. So in order to win the Republican or Democratic nomination for president, a candidate needs to win delegates. Delegates. Delegates, now think of delegates as points or runs or goals, depending on the sport. Delegates are acquired via elections within states. So states, in our analogy, are like quarters of a game or innings of a game or periods of a game. Now, you can say the White Sox won four innings and the Twins won four innings also, but wouldn't it be better to give the score? No, apparently not. Something like 90% of the media just doesn't think that it's better to give the score. Now, let me interrupt myself here. You may be saying, wait, I've heard this. Well, here it is again. No, 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 Mike. That's not what I'm going to do. I'm not going to shove things down your throat. I'm going to give you information, but I'm going to give you information on top of information. At the end of this whole segment, I will explain why it wasn't pedantic. Okay? You're going to think it might be pedantic, but there's going to be a reveal at the end, an M. Night Shyamalan-esque reveal. Mike, you're overpromising. Okay, A late career, last airbender, M. Night Shyamalan reveal. All right. So first off, know this. There were votes in four states on Saturday, four Republican states. And while it's true that Trump had more votes in two of the states and Cruz had more votes in two of the states, the delegates weren't split. Cruz won 69 delegates. Trump won 54 delegates. These numbers have changed. They're subject to change. But the point is, Cruz clearly accumulated more of the thing they were fighting over, more of the very reason they're running the race. And all states are proportional, so this... Cruz handily captured the Republican vote in Kansas and the state's 40 delegates, beating frontrunner Donald Trump. ...is factually wrong. Cruz won 24 of 40... And this, but among the states with Republican delegates up for grabs, except Kansas, Trump was keeping a commanding lead today, with Cruz running behind. Is also wrong. Same report. In fact, right now, Trump, though he got more votes in Louisiana, is tied with Cruz in delegates in Louisiana. As for the Democratic side, here's ABC's Good Morning America on Sunday. Good morning, Dan. Inside that building today, they will probably be talking debate strategy after Hillary Clinton was trumped by Bernie Sanders in two out of three contests. Hey, if you want to make a pun that doesn't make sense, why not bolster it with facts that are actually untrue? Hillary got more delegates than Bernie on Saturday, so she widened her lead. Now, I checked out the front page of every newspaper in America. Mike, you're insane. Yeah, there's a site called the Newseum. It's pretty easy to do. It did take about an hour. I glanced as I was playing with my kids in the park, and there were 48 newspapers, as far as I could tell, that had the results on the front page. I didn't count newspapers from the states that were actually holding primaries or caucuses because they were all about their own states. And of these 48 newspapers, the vast majority just said Cruz won two, Trump won two, and went on to note Democrats also split. So what they should have said, it would have been very easy to say that Cruz picks up delegates on Trump or Cruz narrows the ground with Trump. 48 newspapers, 46 got it wrong. The St. Augustine Record did get it wrong in their phrasing, but also had the delegate count right on the front page so you could see what was going on. And the Providence Journal alone, among the 48 newspapers I saw, headline, Cruz Gains Ground. Do they all think we're dumb? Are we all dumb? I don't know. But here's what i want to do because i fear i'm not making you dumb i know i'm not making you dumb but i may be making you numb so i'm going to explain why i'm not being pedantic pedantic is making a point over and over again that i've done about a technicality but not the essence of a thing like saying it's not grand central station it's grand central terminal that's pedantic oh it's ukraine not the ukraine yes sometimes we misspeak we all know what i'm talking about pedantic is when your words are wrong, but the message is correct. With what we just saw, the words were technically right. They did split two states. It's just that the message was incorrect. Get your message right, guys. On the show today, a little bit of humor in the spiel with a helpful, quite funny guide, the New York Times. But first, the debate about torture has hit the presidential arena. Donald Trump literally says he wants to expand the definition. Ted Cruz hesitated, at least hesitated, when he talked about expanding waterboarding. Right now, we talk to an expert who looked at torture from a math perspective. Casper, it's an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. The fraction being less than one. I want to make that clear. We've been talking about math in the show. You know that four over two could mean double the price. That's not how they get you. Here's how they get you. With premium latex foam and memory foam combined, it's not really get you. You get it. So the price. Let's talk about the price. Mattresses, they cost $1,500, right? A Casper mattress costs between $500 for a twin size and $9.50 for a king size. Buying a Casper mattress is completely risk-free because they offer delivery and returns within a 100-day period. Get it? You go to a store, you lie on a mattress for a few minutes. What what does that tell you? How about you sleep on a mattress for four days, 40 days, 94 days. I don't wanna push it past then. I could, I could take it five more days, but sleep on it within 100 days, return it if you don't like it. That's a great mattress. It's risk-free. And we have a special deal. Here is the deal: get fifty dollars off any mattress by going to Casper.com/gist. Use the code GIST, and you get fifty dollars off your first mattress. That, if you don't like, and why wouldn't you? You can return within hundred days. You've got nothing to lose. It's an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. Terms and conditions apply. Does torture work? Well, it's a hard question, but it's a hard question for reasons that we maybe don't even realize. So the Bush administration doesn't seem to have asked this question that much. But does torture work by John Scheman, who is an associate professor of political science at Fairleigh Dickinson University, is a really interesting look at the question. Because he doesn't lean on history, doesn't lean on morality, he leans on math. This is a mathematical look at the question, does torture work? The appendices are full of things like, suppose D1 plays the strategy III I, I using Bayes' theorem, and then P1 is greater than R minus C over R plus A equals P. John Schiemann is here. Hello, John. Hello. When I say math, game theory is what you're using. That's right. So the main question, the main instance of torture throughout the book is what you call BIT, Bush interrogation techniques?
0: Right. So, the, so those are the techniques that I use to illustrate the idea of, of torture, because the ones the ones we're most familiar with, and it's actually the best case scenario the proponents can make. So those are the techniques, but the BIT actually is one particular model. It's the Bush interrogation, the torture model, which I try to argue is inadequate, and you have to add
1: some realism to it. Right. Here was my general reaction to the book. I strongly suspect that this is a work of genius like MacArthur Grant level genius that makes us rethink this but there's a little part of me that says maybe you're like one of those guys in a conspiracy movie and we go up to your attic and you've got a lot of red string linking a bunch (laughs) of uh, pictures of weird people but maybe take one strand of it and kind of tease out all the decisions along the way and the personality of the torturer and the detainee to either tell us something interesting or something we wouldn't expect or something that, you know, doesn't match up to what the claims of proponents of a torture program would have us believe. I mean, you can
0: imagine, I'll trace out the, f- the first equilibrium, the one that I explained, where you end up with surprise torture. Mm-hmm. And that's the case where a uh, detainee is questioned, threatened w- with torture, provides some information. But the interrogator, imagine your interrogator, somebody sitting across from you is just given you information. Right. What you have to do is you have to figure out. Okay, is this everything? Have they given me everything I wanted? I want to know, or are they still holding back? Now, the the model is very simple, so it's only it's only sort of it's you know two moves. So you have to you know one, one imagines a complicated reality that you've got a series of questions, but it all boils down to at some point, if you're the interrogator and somebody's giving you information, is it enough? And you say fine, and you walk out of the room and you let them go or whatever you do with them lock them away in Guantanamo for life? Or do you say, nope, they're holding back. They claim they don't have anything else and it's time to torture again. So, or to start torturing harder or more or or whatever. So the idea is that you've got all of these thresholds. You have to be wondering whether, in fact, they have information. If so, how much information do they have? And then secondly, how likely it is that they have more information? At what point do I decide I'm going to stop torturing? And the trouble is one just never quite knows what that what that point is yeah you just don't know and so one of the insights of the model for example is that if you actually if you're going to be a lenient torture right and you're going to say oh i think this guy probably knows it then you actually increase the probability that they're going to get away with it Their information hiding right so the, the, the more lenient you are the more likely they are to get away with information on the other hand if you're going to be yeah, very high standards, as it were, you're going to expect a lot, then you wait and you wait and you demand more and more information before you're willing to stop torturing. So there's a there's a trade-off there, mm-hmm. right? The higher your standards, the, the the more you're going to demand, the more you're going to ensure that nobody's going to get away with hiding information, the more you're going to end up torturing. The more lenient you are, the, the less willing you are to torture, the more likely is somebody to get, is, is to get away with it. So what you get, and this happens in lots of other ways as well, what you get is you get these reasonably intuitive ideas, things you might see in in the popular media about torture, but you get them derived deductively, validly from the book, and you end up with these trade-offs that proponents sort of refuse to acknowledge.
1: Okay, there you just laid out an intuitive result that was backed up by a decision chain. What's a non-intuitive result that you teased out by using game theory and math?
0: Well, one of the results of the model is that we should also see Given these assumptions and giving the benefit of the doubt to proponents, that there should be outcomes where a detainee walks into the room, pulled into an interrogation room, they're interrogated, the they provide no information, and the interrogator says, no, you know, I think this, I think this person's innocent." So, yeah. So we're we're not going to torture. We're just going to we're going to let them go. And that's the one case, uh, one of my outcomes where I don't have any empirical evidence. I've got no nice case study to illustrate like I do the others, because it just doesn't. It yes. just doesn't happen.
1: Everyone gets tortured a little, it, just it, to say. Yeah,
0: you just, it just, it's the perfect storm where it just is not the case where somebody ends up in an interrogation room, shackled, diapered, subjected to freezing cold temperatures, loud noises, it doesn't provide any information, and people say, "Nah, they're probably innocent," mm-hmm. even though we know. Some of the neighborhood of 22 percent of the detainees in the CIA program were, in fact, innocent.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And even right. the biggest proponents would say, look, it can't be the case that everyone we brought in knew something. There had to be some guy somewhere along the way who knew nothing. So what you're admitting is you did torture that guy, too. Right.
0: Actually, yeah. very f- proponents don't admit it. So if you look at the Republican <laughs> response to the, to the Senate Intelligence Committee report, the word
1: innocent or its cognates or its synonyms, appears nowhere. Now, what about the calculation? It's very binary proponents of torture, information, no information. Very rarely do they factor in the fact that some percentage of torture ease will give you bad information. So what is the threshold? How much bad information do you accept? If you're getting 99% bad information, do you say that 1% is useful, or do you say that's so much that drains our resources chasing down this 99% that the 1% actually isn't even useful in that regard? Right. Well, the proponents will say that that one, I mean, some proponents yeah. will say that 1% is good enough. That's great.
0: That's all we really need. And they, they just don't simply care about the the—the the torture that produced the, the 99% or the loss of the other 99%. Most people, including many conservatives, would say any government program, and after all, these are always government programs. It's never just the ticking time bomb one instance scenario that is you know, effective 1% of the time, is, is not a not a reliable system. There's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of re- wasted resources, potential other attacks coming that we don't see because we're chasing down. So there's a great example of this from the Senate Intelligence Committee report and other sources that I talk about in the book where Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was waterboarded multiple times until he finally agreed that he was recruiting African-American converts in Montana to strike in the homeland. It was completely made up. It was completely false. The FBI sent all kinds of people out. They went and, and, and they wasted resources trying to track down this non-existent threat.
1: Is there any guide to the models as to when it stops becoming effective in terms of getting real information?
0: So the, the strict answer is no. Mm-hmm. That is to say, the model doesn't explicitly model that particular uh, kind of dynamic you're talking about. But it's certainly not a stretch to imagine that if someone has provided all the information they have, they continue to be tortured. It's probable they will start to provide other information, right? They'll start providing fake information to try to get the torture to stop. So in the case of surprise torture, which is one of the outcomes that I I talk about, it seems pretty obvious that anybody who continues to be tortured even after they get them information is going to try to make up other information just to stop it, in the same way somebody
1: who's completely innocent. Does your model address uh, the correlation between the severity of the torture and the quality of the information?
0: yes in a in, in a way so in other words I, the model doesn't directly look at the interrogator's choice of severity so you know choose waterboarding or mm-hmm. choose sleep deprivation or something like that but the threshold the point at which a, an inter, a detainee decides to provide information or not is just the ratio of the value of the information to the severity of the torture naturally enough the higher the 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 severity of the of the torture the more likely the person is to talk for any given level of information but what that means is The only way to get lots of to make information giving very frequent is to drive up the brutality of of the torture or the information value goes down. So you're actually more likely to get less valuable information.
1: Whereas I think maybe, I don't know in real life if the torturers thought that, but I can imagine a mindset where the torturers would think, well, we'll torture him a bit. And he'll give up the stuff he's willing to give. But then if we tighten the screws, he'll give up the stuff that he's really holding on to. And you're saying the yeah. opposite can happen and has happened.
0: Sure. I mean, and there there are plenty of examples from, from Jeremiah Denton, a former uh, admiral in the United States, who was tortured horribly, essentially put in a refrigerator for four years. Yeah, and uh, never gave up, torture. And, and never gave up anything, yeah. right? And then there are other people who... Uh, There's another case I talk about in the book of a a French guy in in Algeria did the same thing, had horrible tortures applied to him and and never gave up anything. And there are cases in history with people that were not hiding information, but in fact, completely innocent who refused to falsely confess uh, because they didn't want to falsely confess under the most extreme torture. So the assumption, right, is that we torture a little bit, and then if we really squeeze them, we'll get everything. That, in fact, you have to assume that once you start torturing. That's the only—everything else is, it becomes, uh, becomes a nail if that's all you're using is the hammer. Right. And you have to keep pushing hard. Yeah.
1: And if you believe torture works, you believe more ter- torture works better. Right. Yeah. Right. From the model, from real life, what about the innocent person? So the CIA doesn't, says we, we had none. Since they have no real information, right. are they going to be more likely to shut up? and give no information, or are they more likely to give you a stream of stuff that doesn't really pan out? Sure. So obviously it depends on the,
0: in real life, it depends on the individual, which, you know, some people do, some people mm-hmm. don't. I should say that the the CIA does admit that it had a few, in not as many as the Senate majority report claims. It's the Republican response that ignored oh, okay. the, the question of it, okay. just to be as fair, as, uh, you know, to the CIA. It, it depends on the questioning, right? So if you're innocent and I say to you, where's the safe house? you You can't give me an, an answer that's going to that's going to be true, right? right? Or vanishingly, probably you could identify some address in New mm-hmm. York City that's going to be the place. If I say, though, it's at 22 Morton Street, well, you might then at some point, if I'm torturing you enough, you might say, oh, yeah, no, it's, you're definitely right. It's at 22 Morton Street, right? right. So you can... Make up and give me bad information if I if I
1: suggest the answers that I want to hear. Enough, well, which is why, which I
0: might do intentionally or yeah, less intentionally, depending yeah.
1: on what I want to do. But that's why regimes who actually embrace torture, unlike ours, we're talking about tokamata and the Middle Ages, had rules against leading questions.
0: Yeah, but they're probably more often observed in the in the breach, really. I mean, yeah. they, I, 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 it becomes one of the things I learned in looking at all the at the historical examples is. Uh, how similar the cases have been through history, and it becomes extremely difficult not to ask leading questions. And by the way, people under torture are very good at desperately trying to figure out what it is you want to hear. There are far more subtle, unintentional ways that interrogators will convey what they want to hear, and and they, and they figured this out. And there are cases, there are, there are quotes in the Senate Intelligence Committee report
1: of, uh, of Al-Qaeda detainees doing this. All right. I get it, John. We've been playing footsie here. Let's, let's cut to it. <laughs> I've, been, I've been good copping you. Does torture work? It does not. Just no. clearly does not. Look, it does not. Can same, it sometimes it does, work?
0: Of course it can sometimes uh-huh. work. It would be odd if it never in the history of humanity worked. You can also put, as I mentioned in the book, you can put out a fire with gasoline.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Right? It's possible. Is it recommended? No. So, you know, almost the conditions under which you can put a fire with gasoline are extremely rare and unlikely. I should also say that even though it's possible to get good information, it can work, right? Only if you're willing to torture innocents. And we see this in the the Senate Intelligence Committee's report. So the only way you can get information is if you torture a lot of people. Because anytime somebody doesn't give you the answer you want to hear, you have to torture them. To make it credible that you're going to keep doing this until they talk. Well, that means that anybody who's innocent, you're going to have to torture them. So I think one of the things that's missing from this from this question is people will say, well, what well, does it work even sometimes, if even if it's rarely, you know, the one in a hundred chance we have to do it? What that doesn't take into account is that even if that were the case, in these very rare circumstances in which it works, it means you're torturing all kinds of innocent people. And, right. There are some things we just decide as a, as a nation we don't
1: do. If all the proponents of torture who said that here are the what, what was it? They put out a, a list of however many instances where it worked or pieces of intelligence right. that we got for the torture. And if all those were true, would that change the model? Because you acknowledge it sometimes can give you actionable intelligence.
0: No, because the, right, the book looks at the range of possible outcomes. So you can cherry pick outcomes where it doesn't work. You can cherry pick outcomes where it, it does work, which is actually the reason why I wrote the book. Because because that's what people have been doing essentially. There is no systematic data. Yeah. We don't know the universe of data. We can't do you know the the proper kind of analysis to figure out figure this question out. So that that wouldn't change it. And in fact, actually, I I took one of those cases, one of the ones that you, you're mentioning, and I. I drilled down. I looked at every single footnote. I mean I don't know if you've seen these reports, but they're very long. They're very <laughs> huge with all these sort of thousands of footnotes. And if you trace it out, actually the 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 claim that it worked, at least in the case of this one Jose Padilla uh, guy that uh, when he when information was given up by Abu Zubaydah about him, it it just doesn't pan out as this as this clear-cut case where He was not giving us the information, and only once we, you know, waterboarded or or did this other, these uh, other techniques, then we got this, you know, very clear, separate piece of critical intelligence that we would not have gotten otherwise.
1: You just don't, you just don't have that. Does Torture Work is the work by John Scheman. Thanks very much. Thanks very much for having me. I'm starting a website, people. It's going to include some version of my name. Or F. Murray Abrahams. Either me or F. Murray Abraham or a combination thereof. Like F. Murray Pescaham. Could be something like that. Anyway, I'm doing it on Squarespace. Because Squarespace is the only way to set up a website. I always talk about Squarespace. And, you know, in the ads they want me to say, I remember when I was building my website. I'm not a millennial. I'm older. I'm a supra supraennial. So I haven't built a website. I work for a website. It's the online magazine Slate. But I've never built a website. I've I've fiddled about the internet. I remember when GeoCities w- was a thing, but I never really built a website, so I'm going to do it. And I'm going to do it with Squarespace. And you can too, because we have a free trial going at Squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, use the offer code GIST to get 10% off your first purchase. It is so easy to build a website via Squarespace. I will give you the first person a testament to that pretty soon when I build F. Murray Pescaham. I really am building a website. In fact, I was just outside the Squarespace building, and they were putting the name Squarespace on the building, and I took a selfie, which even as a super millennial I do, I took a selfie. I'm going to use that on the website because there's an analogy or a resonance or something. Squarespace.com. Make sure to use the offer code GIST to get 10% off your first purchase. And now the spiel, all the yucks that are fit to print. Let me read from the Washington Post. They were talking about something Joe Biden said over the weekend. Here's the whole article. The gridiron dinner is a Washington institution, politicians making fun of one another. But few jokes at the expense of one's colleagues are this good. From Vice President Biden's appearance Saturday night on Ted Cruz and his lack of likability. Here's the quote. Ted Cruz, an inspiration for every kid in America who worries that he'll never be able to run for president because nobody likes him. He's running. And look, I told Barack, if you really, really want to remake the Supreme Court, nominate Cruz. Before you know it, you'll have eight vacancies. Ouch. To quote in its entirety, the Washington Post's account. Now, the New York Times ran the same joke and then tagged it with this paragraph. It was more than just a humorous dig at Mr. Cruz during the traditional Washington event where politicians roast themselves in speeches and journalists lampoon them in musical skits. Mr. Biden's remarks hit on the historic stakes facing the president as he ponders his choice to succeed Justin Antonin Scalia, who died last month leaving Mr. Obama with a chance to fundamentally reshape the nation's highest court by replacing its leading conservative. That was an inspiration an inspiration for this, which I call The New York Times Explains Humor.
0: The New York Times Explains Humor. Humor. Humor.
1: Here now, George Carlin. Have you ever noticed when you're driving that anyone who's driving slower than you is an idiot? And anyone driving faster than you is a maniac! Carlin, a keen observer of rhetoric as well as human behavior, is not only noting the vagaries of driving styles, but deftly commenting on the inherent subjectivity of the observer. Left unsaid, but adding a frisson of meta-analysis to the joke, is that the slower driver might indeed find us to be the maniac, and the faster driver would in turn deem us the idiot. This almost Heisenbergian point of view keeps the audience both amused and self-reflective which, as the uncertainty principle itself holds, affects and deepens the comedy. I'd like to do an impression of my dad, but I don't have a newspaper in five hours to spare. <laughs> Despite a faux-chipper upspeak, Chelsea Peretti lets us in on a truthful sadness of her childhood. The father, so distant as to defy caricaturing, is itself a caricature. And Peretti, embodying the sad clown, shrugs and makes her peace with the emotional abandonment of a parent. This evocation of an upbringing deepens and gives resonance to Peretti's earlier bits, like when she pretended to get humped by a stool. I was in a supermarket, I saw Paul Newman's picture on salad dressing and pie. Popcorn and spaghetti sauce. Does that mean he's missing? Paul Newman is missing? (laughs) Confluence and overlap are a key component of comedy. And here, Bob Saget plays on two trends that were notable at the time of the telling of this joke, the late 80s. Actor Paul Newman aggressively endorsed a line of food items, and given the thespian's near-universal celebrity, it was logical that he would put his visage upon each item. At the same time, a then-somewhat-recent trend was displaying the picture of lost children on milk cartons. Saget is adopting the persona, at least temporarily, of a stooge or a dupe who does not understand that the actor's food items display Newman's face for different reasons than the missing children's milk cartons do. Today, the joke has less resonance because we've come to understand that the spate of stranger kidnappings were largely an exaggeration, if not an outright invention, of news media. And also because we know that Paul Newman is not missing, he is dead. I'm talking about a regular Chinese restaurant. One of the dessert options, there's two, right? There's sliced oranges. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I-, I don't want to overwork the kitchen. Oranges? What did a schooner just arrive from the Caribbean? <laughs> Looks like our scurvy's cured, fellas. <laughs> to orient the listener, please know that both voices you heard in that clip were Jim Gaffigan's. He was utilizing the comic technique of adopting and quickly abandoning temporary personae. First, he notes that he doesn't want to overwork the kitchen. This is clearly sarcasm. Preparing an orange is quite easy, especially for trained culinary workers. Then he speaks of staving off scurvy, a well-known effect of the vitamin C in all citrus fruit. While Gaffigan's scurvy content isn't delivered in a clear English accent, his delivery sufficiently scans as other so as to evoke perhaps an English sailor or any other manner of person who might be worried of the ravages of scurvy. And finally, a joke from Saturday Night Live, this weekend's Weekend Update. A Florida woman found a missing cat from Wisconsin which had wandered nearly 1,500 miles over two months. Or, and hear me out, sometimes cats look like other cats. The laughter comes from a few possible places. The first is the possibility that the cat's owners had simply mistaken one cat for another similar looking cat. But a quick check of the actual news story reveals the presence of a microchip in Nadia, the Russian blue cat found in Naples, Florida, which would preclude a simple case of mistaken feline identity. Yet on a deeper level, the joke may be working based on the common trope of animals making their way home over thousands of miles. Who among us, having heard that story, hasn't at least thought, are you sure it was your pet? Or what, even if it wasn't your pet, what if it reminds you of your pet? Hey, you got a pet. Or maybe this whole story is an elaborate ruse to trick the kids into thinking we have found their pet. Speaking from a more global perspective, why am I hearing the story of the journey of a pet when at this very moment humans are drowning in the Aegean and being chased out of Macedonia? And I'm supposed to care about a freaking cat. Yeah, also, it is true that cats do look like each other. This has been...
0: The New York Times Explains Humor.
1: Which is funny because of its grandiosity and the idea that explaining humor is antithetical to humor.
0: Antithetical to humor.
1: Humor. That's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi is the Gist's producer. She used math to prove that everything is walking distance if you have the time. Steve Liktai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts, who used math to show that Sammy Hagar simply doesn't want to drive 55. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, used math to show that a 20-sided die rolled 100 times still won't boost a second-level chaotic neutral warrior strength enough to slay a manticore. The gist. We use math to prove the point that you can go back to a subject one time too many. We prove that point every day. And thanks for listening.